Hi, Podcast Brunch Club. I just want to take a quick second to thank some of our organizational partners. Podchaser is the IMDb of podcasts and offers amazing search and list creation and now has a cool social feed feature. Lentigua Williams and Company is the production team behind podcasts like Latina to Latina, 70 Million, and Feeling My Flow. Critical Frequency is an all-women-owned and operated podcast network for independent creators and those who are often overlooked in mainstream media. Listen Notes is a powerful podcast search engine that also offers list creation. The Venn puts out a weekly podcast playlist on the political issues surrounding the 2020 U.S. election. And Audio Boom is a podcast network featuring funny, inspiring, entertaining, and thought-provoking podcasts. These are some of our early sponsors, so go to the Podcast Brunch Club website to see all of the great organizations supporting the Podcast Brunch Club community. And go find these companies. They are great for both content and discovery. And they support and give back to the listener community. If you are an individual and want to support PBC, go to patreon.com slash podcast brunch club. If you represent an organization and want to support the PBC listener community, email me at Adela, that's A-D-E-L-A, at podcastbrunchclub.com. Thanks and happy listening. Welcome, everyone, to the Podcast Brunch Club podcast. My name is Jenna Spinelli. I'm one of the leaders of the Podcast Brunch Club virtual chapter, and I'm excited to be talking today with Sarah Gonzalez, a host and reporter with NPR's Planet Money, about an episode of Planet Money called Counting the Homeless that's featured on the December Podcast Brunch Club playlist. You can find that Planet Money episode and the rest of the playlist at podcastbrunchclub.com slash homelessness. Again, that's podcastbrunchclub.com com slash homelessness. With that said, let's get to the interview. Sarah, welcome to the Podcast Brunch Club podcast. Thank you. So Counting the Homeless episode weaves together three stories, a program to combat homelessness in New York City, segment on the, the recent history of, of homelessness with a professor from the University of Pennsylvania, and an effort to create a more robust database of the the homeless, really kind of count them, see who's out there. I'm curious, which of these stories came on to your radar first? And then how did the other pieces fall into place? Yeah. So originally, we wanted to do a piece on people who are experiencing homelessness using hotels instead of shelters. In New York City, there's a law called right to shelter, which means that every single person, man, woman, couple, family, has the right to shelter, which means the city of New York is legally obligated to find a bed for every single person or family member every single night of the year. Now, if people, you know, usually who are experiencing mental illnesses don't want to take advantage of that, like that's why we end up seeing people who are who are what are called street homeless. But, you know, there are many more who are in shelters. And when the shelters are full, at some point, the city started turning to hotels because they had to find a place for them to sleep, a bed for them to sleep with a roof over their head. So they started having this partnership with hotels. And originally we had heard that like Airbnb was taking away business from hotels in New York City and how people who are experiencing homelessness who are in hotels are sort of like helping the hotels out. So it was originally going to be a piece about that, about like how Airbnb is taking business away from the hotels and how this, you know, maybe surprising to some people, group of people 
were helping support the hotels in New York City. And then once we started reporting this, it would just became clear that we needed a lot more context and history of like how we became to have the homelessness problem that we that we do today. And so it just kind of morphed into something else. And also there was like deadlines, right? <laughs> so we <were> like, yeah, sure. <laughs> we were, so when we originally wanted to do that piece and then somewhere along the way, we just kind of lost that thread and we stopped pursuing that piece and we just got more interested in other pieces. So originally what I did was there's there's a group called the Coalition for the Homeless. They are the people behind the right to shelter law in New York City. They say in the piece that they never expected that ensuring that people have shelter would turn into this like weird business where hotels are now renting rooms to the homeless paid for by the city, by taxpayers. The city spends a million dollars a day, just under a million dollars a day on hotels for the homeless. Then they spend many more millions of dollars on shelters for the homeless. Right. Do you know or, or, or can you talk at all about how that right to shelter law came into place, how the coalition you just mentioned and maybe other groups built the political will to make that happen in the city? So in 1979, the Coalition for the Homeless brought a case against the city of New York, basically saying we should as a city, New York as a city should find shelter for every single person who is experiencing homelessness. And the lawyer was representing one man in particular, this guy named Robert Callahan, who was a man who was experiencing homelessness, who had chronic alcoholism. And this attorney, this lawyer found him sleeping on the streets and then came to represent him. And then right before the city agreed that people who are experiencing homelessness do have a right to shelter, this man, Callahan, died on the streets of Manhattan. So kind of tragic ending. But that's that's the origin story to, to the right to shelter law. Wow. So, so it's been in place for, for a long time. I mean, if you think about what New York City was like in, in 1979, it's a very different place than it is today. In your piece, you go along with, with a gentleman named Chris, I, I believe his name is, kind of into one of the, the rooms he's staying in at, at a hotel you'd say we'd all recognize the name of. And in the piece, Chris describes a little of what the, the room looks like, but I'm wondering if you can expand on that a little bit more. How does the room that he and his roommate share compare to what you or I might think of as like a, a normal hotel room, for lack of a better term? Sure. So first I'll say I came out with the Coalition for the Homeless since they are the stewards or they're the they're still like the court appointed monitors of the shelter system in New York City still. And so they know which hotels are renting rooms out to the homeless paid for by the city. It's not public information on purpose. Like we should not, we as the public, sh they don't want us knowing which hotels are offering these services. Oh yeah, to the that homeless. totally makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So it's probably for like safety reasons and also, you know, because the hotels don't want people knowing. Um, and so some of the hotels are like what you would consider, what like where you and I would go to book a room at where it, from what we can tell, it's just all paying customers. Um, and then some of them are more kind of like, basically, they turn into shelters where the only people who are in the hotels are people who are experiencing homelessness and the city is paying for their rooms. So I went out with this, the, the Coalition for the Homeless with the, a woman named Giselle Ruthier. And she took me to one hotel and it was in the middle of Times Square, flashing lights 
kind of fancy hotel, like four or five star hotel. You walked in and there were chandeliers and orchids and like a fancy coffee cart. And we just kind of hung out in the lobby. And the goal, the plan was to try to find someone who was in there who was experiencing homelessness and see if they would talk to us. It's really hard to find who is homeless and who is not because there's no way to really tell if they're experiencing homelessness or not. They don't look anyway, you know? Um, and so we'd be like in the lobby trying to find like, can we go up to this person? Can we go up to that person? That's really weird. That's really rude. Like we, I didn't know how to handle that situation. It felt kind of icky a little bit. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I couldn't go up to the floor where the people who are experiencing homelessness are staying. So there was like one floor, actually it was a couple of floors that were dedicated to the homeless. And once you get on the elevator, if you get off on that floor, it basically feels like a shelter. So they can't have guests. People can't go up and visit them. So you can't see their room. There's someone, you know, in the hallway kind of checking everyone in and checking them out. So I wouldn't have been able to go in there. So that's why we were just trying to like find people outside in the lobby and outside of the hotel. It didn't work out. And so then I was like, okay, I'm going to go to a hotel where every single person in the hotel is homeless because that way I know for certainty that if I approach someone who's coming out of the hotel, they're going to be one of the people that I want to talk to. So I go to another part of New York City, also in Manhattan, also like, you know, big corner of New York City. And I just sort of hang out outside of this hotel for probably a couple hours. Um, and I see someone who is about to walk in. And I go up to him and I'm like, hi, I'm, you know, my name is Sarah. I'm a reporter. We're doing a story about the homeless and the hotels and the system. And, you know, do you want to chat with me? And so we spoke at a park, which was right outside of his hotel. I couldn't go into the hotel because it was treated like a shelter and they're not allowed to have visitors. So we just chatted outside at night um, for probably a couple hours. And luckily he had pictures of his room. Um, and so he was able to give me kind of like a tour of the room just through pictures. And so I saw it and it was, you know, it looked like it looked like a regular hotel from the outside. And even from, you know, I could peer in and see sort of like the lobby and the hallways looked like a regular hotel. But then once you open the door, you just saw kind of like remnants of a hotel and nothing else about it. So there was no hotel furniture there was like the outline of where the headboard used to be, but it was really just like cots, two cots next to each other with a locker. And that's basically it. Right. And, and is there any time limit to, to how long people can stay in these hotel rooms? No. I mean, it's the shelter system has all these rules in place, right? They want you to try to find a job and try to transition out. But if you do not have a place to sleep and the shelters are full, then the city will always have to find you a hotel bed to sleep in. And sometimes they also they also like rent apartment buildings and floors of apartment buildings to house people in apartments as well. So it's just like kind of they 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 look they look everywhere they can to try to find these beds. Right. So you know one of the the, the things that was so great about this episode it did have these details and and specifics about New York City's program but also this like 10,000 foot view of this problem, this this effort to try to count people who are experiencing homelessness. And you mentioned at the, the very end of the episode that you had spoken with someone from the Urban League. I 
I believe it was for kind of background research and and things like that. And, you know, I think a lot of podcast listeners maybe don't always realize a lot of that like behind the scenes type of reporting that that goes in to a piece like this. So can you just talk about that a little bit? I mean, maybe for this piece, what you were you're were able to glean from that behind the scenes work. And then also like anyone who listens to Planet Money, I mean, how much of that behind the scenes work is there that goes in to what ultimately ends up going on the air? So I'll just say that um, at Planet Money, we basically, each correspondent like on average ends up taking about three weeks to execute one story on, you know, whatever topic. Uh, This homelessness one, I think we did completely like start to finish in a week. So wow, it was a really rushed one. Um, I mean, me personally, everyone has their own style. Me personally, I end up doing, I would say for every piece, there's like at least four interviews that I did that don't make it into the piece. And it'll just be either background knowledge or something that kind of spurs something like an interview that where someone says something and it leads me down a different path. But yeah, there's a lot more interviews and much longer interviews that we do that never make it into the piece. So the Urban League, I reached out to them. They were probably one of the first people that I reached out to. It was a woman named Mary Cunningham, if I remember correctly. And she was basically telling me like the history of the homelessness crisis, like when it started, when when it became what we, the crisis that we know that it is today. Like when did that start, which was in the 70s and 80s. And she was the one who told me about a study that was published in 2002 that sort of changed the conversation around homelessness forever, kind of. Um, And it was a study that basically looked at people who are experiencing homelessness, chronic homelessness, which means they're not homeless for a month or, you know, a couple of weeks like the guy in my episode, Chris, but they're going to be they have been homeless for a very long time and probably will be homeless for a very long time or for the rest of their lives because they have addiction issues or mental health issues. And so these are like the people who cost society the most money, I guess. And so he looked at this group of people who are homeless and he found that doing nothing, like letting them stay homeless, letting them go in and out of hospitals, letting them go in and out of jails, like letting them be sick in and out of sickness and addiction cost society more money than if we just got them all an apartment. And when he found that, the Bush administration, like, invested all this money into solving chronic homelessness. So it wasn't like the people who are, the, the you know, a little bit vulnerable and, you know, maybe they lost their apartment for a month, but, like, the group of people that society has, like, the least compassion for. And, and I had kind of known about this study. It's, you know, it's a very, very famous study, and it's been replicated many, many, many times in many, many, many countries. But when she told me that, it kind of changed the story a little bit because we were like, well, we should probably get into this this big study and the findings and how this was the first time in America since we had like the, a big homeless problem where politicians were dedicated to pumping a bunch of money into the into the problem. So then what I ended up doing was calling up that professor, Dennis Colhane, and then doing the interview with him. And he ended up making it into the piece, um, just his study. Right. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's hard to like look at some of these issues in, in a vacuum, I think. I mean, I, I found myself when I was listening to the episode thinking about, well, there's the, you know, Great Recession that happened in, in 2008 and, you know, all the stories we hear about the Bay Area, for example, about tech companies moving in and, and you know, pricing people out and those kind of things. I mean, did those types of issues kind of come into your mind when you were reporting the piece? I know that you are constrained in the sense that, you know, every episode has to be a certain length and you can't fit it all in. But, I, but you know, I'm wondering how you wrestle with with some of these these bigger issues and, and you know, making sure that you provide all the, the kind of appropriate context. Or maybe even if you were going to do a follow up, if there's other pieces of the story that you feel like you didn't get to fully explore in, in this one particular episode. Oh, I mean, yeah, especially with an issue like homelessness. If you're ever going to do an episode on homelessness, you're always going to feel like I'm not telling the whole story. There's so much more to this. There's so many nuances. And also like the people, like we want to make sure we hear from the people and how it feels to be homeless and what they need and what they want and, you know, things like that. And we did get that in a little bit. Like I think Chris comes across like a well-rounded person. You know, he talked to us about his daughter who was valedictorian of her high school, went off to college. She had just had lunch with her. Uh, He had just had lunch with her the day that we met and she paid and he felt really like proud that his daughter could pay for his lunch, you know, after she came home from college. Um, And so I think it was important to kind of make sure that Chris came across like a real person, whole, well-rounded, that he was more than just the homelessness that he was experiencing. Um, So that was definitely important. And then I think New York's homeless situation is just so different from other places. Like Los Angeles has a huge number of ho- of of people who are experiencing homelessness and they're on the street as opposed to in New York City where they're in shelters right so there's still people who are homeless but one is more visible than the other in LA it's like very very vi- visible and you have tent cities and and all that kind of stuff and in New York you don't actually see a ton of people on the street and it's probably because of the right to shelter law at least in part even though it ended up morphing into this weird thing where you have to rent out hotel beds for them. Um, And the crazy thing about the whole thing is that renting out a hotel for everyone who is who needs a bed is far more expensive, like twice as expensive as giving each of these people a paid for apartment. It's like twice as expensive to get them a hotel than it is to get them an apartment. Even in New York? Even in New York. Wow. It costs $40,000 a year to shelter a single adult like Chris like, I do not spend $40,000 a year on rent. Right. You know, like I would have a very, very nice apartment if I spent that much on rent. Yeah. yeah. Um, I spend half of that on rent. Like the Coalition for the Homeless will say we are glad that people have the right to shelter in some kind of way, that they have the right to a bed with a roof or th- over their head. But the hotel system was not what they envisioned So New York has like its own issue, like New York has its own very complicated and weird system for how it deals with people who are experiencing homelessness. And then L.A., which is another really huge area, has a completely different one. And so we did get the L.A. scene in a little bit. Um, I reached out to the people who conducted the, the homeless count in L.A. to talk about how they do it. So in New York. It's volunteers with clipboards and flashlights and they go out at night and they just sort of look and count um, the people that they see and they don't interact with them. 
in L.A., they talk to them. They talk to the people that they see, um, but they also count like if they see a, an RV or a makeshift tent. So they're putting tally marks when they see things and not just when they see people. So they're just like very, very different ways of, of counting the homeless. Sure. So I know, you know, in, in New York, you were saying that everyone has has a right to shelter and there's there's a system in place to do that. But, you know, you're also talking about there's kind of a disincentive for landlords to provide affordable housing. So, you know, I'm, I'm wondering what kind of the long-term goal is for, for folks who are in these shelters. I mean, is it something where, you know, does the coalition think that people are, are eventually going to move out of the shelter into a residence that they're paying for on their own? Or is, is it more about kind of making sure that they can you know, manage the people that they have with the idea that, yeah, they're probably going to be in our shelters for the long term. Yeah. I mean, the city is phasing out the use of commercial hotels for people who are experiencing homelessness. So they have acknowledged that, yes, like the hotel system is a really expensive way to provide shelter to people who are homeless. So they're getting out of the commercial hotel use, but they say that it's going to take them about four or five years from now, probably four years by now, and that they are investing more in permanent housing for them. Great. So uh, we, we we touched on this a little bit before, but just to, just to come back to it, you know, if, if you were going to tackle another piece of this story, are there there, there are other ideas that you have or, or that you've you've thought about or would like to do moving forward? I think it's just been this area where people try something out. They're like, okay, we're going to fight homelessness like this. And then they have this policy in place and they give it a year or two years or five years. And then they're like, okay, that, that doesn't work. Let's not do that. And then they come up with a new way of doing it. And I think I noticed just when I was like following the history of policies that have come in and out in different cities to try to fight homelessness. And you're just like, wow, they really trickle in and then they trickle out. And I think maybe that what works in one place isn't going to work everywhere. Yeah. What what surprised you the most from the reporting on this piece? I think what surprised me the most was this old study from 2002, which found that doing nothing literally costs us more than doing something. Like it costs us more to do absolutely nothing to let people stay homeless than it does to rent them an apartment. Right. Um, I will say that that's for just this one segment of the homeless population, which is the chronically homeless. There's many, many people in the U.S. who experience temporary homelessness. And obviously it would be more expensive if you bought those people an apartment for the year or rented them out an apartment for the year because they really only need help for a month. But for the chronically homeless, it's it's cheaper. Yeah. And, and you know, hopefully this piece might encourage listeners to look into or at least spend more time thinking about or, or learning about what the practices are in their city. Like you said, every city does thing, things a little bit differently. And this is a population I think it's safe to say most people who are not experiencing homelessness or have not experienced homelessness themselves really spend a lot of time thinking about. So um, yeah, definitely very, very eye-opening for sure. So thank you for for all of your work in in putting it together. Yeah. Um, and I mean, the counts are, the counts are like these enormous undertakings, you know, in, in LA County, they had 8,000, they have like about 8,000 volunteers and they cover every single inch of Los Angeles County. So like, Abandoned buildings, parking lots, uh, beaches, parks, 
dried out riverbeds, like they go everywhere. And in New York, it's more like pockets of New York. But yeah, the the guy who who was one of the guys who were in the piece, Jake, who who works, he has dedicated his life to try to connect people who are experiencing homelessness to homes. He started out as a counter, as a volunteer counter counting homeless people. Right. Yeah. And it's, he really has kind of, like you said, made this his life's work, it seems, you know, and, and not just count them. I think he, he makes a point, too, that he wants to know who they are, try to put put some more context around the, you know, simply the fact that that someone is experiencing homelessness, make them more than than just a number. Right. Right. Because, I mean, I guess what, what his groups advocates or what, what their experience has been is that if you know each homeless person in your community and you ask them or talk to them and find out what their issues are, that makes them eligible for a cer- like a certain group of funding that can help connect them to a house. If you don't know what these people are experiencing, then you don't know what resources they have access to. Right, so right. their whole We're, thing is like find out, you know, if they're if they have alcoholism, there are things, grants and programs and funding that can go towards helping that person. Or if they're veterans, like that's a very big one. If if they are if they know that someone who is homeless is a veteran, that opens up this, you know, whole other opportunity for resources and funding and um, to help them get to help get veterans into homes and off of streets. Sarah, we've in some ways barely scratched the surface of this piece. You really did do do a great job of of fitting a lot into like twenty five minutes or so. Um, and and thank you for for helping to to peel back the curtain a little bit on on your your reporting process. Um, like I said, I think a lot of listeners maybe don't always realize all the kind of behind the scenes work that that really goes into to a piece like this. Well, as we bring things to a close here, Sarah, uh, Podcast Brunch Club is a listener community, and we always end every episode of this show by asking our guests what podcasts they're listening to. So uh, what what shows would, would you recommend our community check out? There's a show, uh, it's an NPR podcast called Throughline. It is a history podcast, and I'm really into history podcasts right now, or just like I, I love history stories. Um, and they basically try to explain the present day by looking back at history and how we got here. There was an episode recently on zombies and Haiti, and it was fascinating and how like zombies came about through slavery, like how zombies, the origin story of zombies is connected to slavery um, when people felt like they were just dead and walking around, but still alive. So Throughline, definitely listen to Throughline. There's also another NPR podcast um, called The Rough Translation that if you really like human stories and narrative and you want to go on like a journey to another place, uh, Rough Translation. Very cool. Well, great. Uh, Sarah, thank you for those recommendations. And thank you for joining us on the Podcast Brunch Club podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. Hey, Steve here from the Minneapolis PBC with a few credits. First off, please rate and review our podcast on your podcast player of choice. The music you heard today is downloaded from freemusicarchive.org, and this episode featured music from Chad Crouch with their song Rainbow. The ad music at the top of the show is from Ms. Algana with their song Paradise. Podcast Brunch Club is organized by a woman I can't praise enough, Adela. 
Sarah De Silva is our other podcast host, the leader of the Houston chapter of PBC and the founder of Audible Feast. Thanks to Jenna Spinelli, leader of our online PBC chapter. She also writes many articles for the PBC website. Check them out. Lastly, audio editing is done by me. You can connect with me on my website, conceptualpodcasting.com. Thanks, and happy listening. Happy listening.